over a month ago, Russian troops began an assault on Ukraine. But their troubles didn't just start there. In 2014, Russia took over Crimea, which is a peninsula that, a peninsula that juts out into the Black Sea. It was part of Ukraine, and Russia took it. In 2014, the president of Ukraine was ousted in what's called the Revolution of Dignity. He had decided to side with Russia rather than his own people and the European Union. The people protested and violence ensued and the president was voted out and an interim president was put in place. Going back just a bit further, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, but it was in a weird location. It was in the uh, a far western part of the Soviet Union, meaning that it was bordered by European countries that were not communist. There's obviously much more to this about the, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, but it goes very, very deep. And when we saw what happened with Russian troops coming into Ukraine, we we started to learn a few things, because let's be honest, most of us didn't know anything about Ukraine before this. We, we knew it was a country, we knew it was somewhere on, in Eastern Europe, but we weren't quite sure where. Now I think most of us do know where it's at. And more than that, we've seen something that maybe we haven't seen in quite a while. We've seen people defending their homes. We've seen videos of, of men putting their wives and children on trains. And you've seen that one video that made its rounds in social media where uh, the daughter was standing there and bundled up. And the, the dad uh, pulled out a piece of paper to read, but he couldn't do it. So he put it back away and he grabbed his daughter and he's weeping. He knows that this may be the last time they ever see each other. He knows he's going into war. And he's sending his wife and daughter as far away as possible. The man certainly isn't alone. Someone near him just happened to have a phone and just happened to hit record uh, to get this story. But this has happened thousands and thousands of times where men and women have stayed to fight. An invading, an, an invading army, a, a neighboring country has decided to invade and they had no choice but to defend everything they've ever known. I also think about the president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. He was given chances to leave the country. He could go and hide and he wouldn't be harmed. He was asked to evacuate by the U.S. government and, and, and an official who had uh, knowledge, direct knowledge of what he said. He said this, quote, the fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. You've seen videos of the president on the streets ready to lead his people to defend their home. We all want leadership like that, don't we? No one wants to follow or work for someone who hasn't done or won't do what they're telling other people to do, especially in wartime. A, a president of a country deciding to stay in a war zone is someone people will fight for, someone who people will follow. Now. I want to be careful that no one misunderstands what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that we need to be more militant as Christians, not at all. I'm also not connecting government with the Christian faith. We, we've seen some of that. That's called Christian nationalism, and I want nothing to do with that. But what I'm saying is there is a connection between good leadership standing firm when things are difficult. We could find examples of this in business, in government, in churches. In sports, 
Instances where people should have quit, but instead stood firm and kept fighting. Often at great cost. You know, we read Jude 3 and 4. And when I read this, I can't help but think of the many examples of people where, who have stood firm in the face of great adversity. I can't help but think of the Ukrainians led by their president who are fighting or to use Jude's term, contending for their country. They're fighting for their families because it's worth fighting for. And Jude tells us in these verses, he tells us that we must fight, or again, to use his words, to contend for the faith. He writes this letter to people who are in a similar situation to Ukrainian, the Ukrainians. People who are lost. People who are struggling to do what's right but can't really quite figure it out. And they need leadership. They need people to help them to, to show me how to contend for this. Show me how to fight for this. Jude tells them to fight for the faith. Don't let these people who are coming in with false teaching, don't let these false converts come in here, put on sheep's clothes and pretend to be a believer and wreak havoc in your church. Don't do that. Don't let people tarnish the name of Jesus. Don't let people promote sinful lifestyles. Don't let people come in and destroy the church from within. Contend for the faith. And my first point this morning, and I only have two. First, it's from verse 3. You know what you believe. Beloved, as Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Here's a question that I kept asking myself as I read that verse over and over again. How can we contend for something that we don't know? How can we fight to defend something that we don't know? One of the difficulties of war, at least of an invading country, and we're seeing this on the news is that the country that's playing the home team, the defense, they know the terrain. They know the spots to hide. They know where the fight needs to be pushed towards. They know what needs to be done. The same could be said of sports, right? We, we root for, for, for our home team, and when our team is playing at home, they have an advantage. They, they get to sleep in their own house. They get to go to their own locker room. They come out to the band that's playing their song. They, they know the grounds. They know where everything is. It's comfortable. There's a reason why colleges paint visiting locker rooms awful colors. It's the home field advantage. Why isn't it advantage? They have knowledge of their stadium. The soldiers have knowledge of the terrain, of the land. They, they have knowledge of the country. They're defending what they know. And Jude is, is encouraging us to recognize that we cannot defend something that we don't know. I start with this because if we don't understand this, the rest of what Jude says falls flat. My experience, the number one reason why we as Christians don't share the gospel is that we're afraid that we don't have the answers. 
The reason why we don't disciple one another well is because we don't have the answers. We, we feel inadequate. We don't feel trained. We don't feel like we have enough Bible knowledge or theological expertise to, to, to do this. I'm guilty. There have been many times I've avoided conversations, and I can pinpoint some of those that, that stand out as regrets in my life where I could have shared the gospel, I could have encouraged a believer, I could have done those things, and my own fear prevented me from doing it. I gave in because it was easier. I was scared. I didn't want to face intimidation. I didn't want to look stupid. So I ignored what the Bible tells me to do. For me, that's been a motivating force to push me to learn more because the next time I don't want to be in that same situation. Why do we... Why, why, why when we play sports does the coach pull us aside after the game and show us where we messed up so we don't make that same mistake again? And that's been a motivating factor for me and, and what I've learned to say to people who say, I, I just don't have the answers to share the gospel. I just don't have the answer to disciple people. I don't know these things. And my answer, not to be snarky, is, well, go get those answers. For me, it's, it's been something that has pushed me to go get those answers. If you've been asked a question that you didn't have an answer for, take time to study God's word so you'll find those answers. See what God's word says about that. This is something that the people in Jude's day needed. They needed to know what the gospel was. They've distorted the gospel into all sorts of weird things. They've taken God's grace and made it into some libertine freedom that they can do whatever they want because they didn't understand what they were Trying to defend. Jude says, contend for the faith. Know what you believe and go out and proclaim it. Stand firm in the gospel. But the truth is, you can have five PhDs. You can go to seminary time and over again. And you'll still never know what all that you need. You still won't have all of the answers. There's never a point at which you're going to have all the answers to every question someone will ask. So what do we do? Well, we trust the power of God. We trust that God's going to give us the strength and give us the courage to do what's right. But that still doesn't negate our responsibility to learn more about the faith that we claim as our own. Jude says that he initially wanted to write a really nice letter to them. He wanted to write a letter that was gentle and warm and nothing but encouragement. But then he hears that there are problems that are happening in churches all over. So he writes this letter to multiple churches, to, to Christians all over, and he gives this correction. False converts had come into the church and they were tearing the church apart and leading people astray. They were leading people into sin. Issues came up that needed to be addressed. Now, I'm thinking personally, I've lived here for nearly three years. I'm not, if you can tell by the way that I sound, I'm not native to East Tennessee. I, uh, I've bounced around and um, one thing that I've noticed, uh, this is the first time I've lived in the South for, again, nearly three years. Uh, I noticed very, very quickly that the stereotype of the South is true in one way. We don't like to deal with problems, do we? We, we like to ignore the difficulties. Those who want to deal with problems head on tend to stand out. It's a little odd. I found myself frustrated with this, and, and, and I'm trying to figure out how to deal with this, and I, 
I, I recognize that dealing with the opposite direction is equally problematic. We sometimes ignore the problems or we just scream and yell at each other and hope that that solves the problems and we realize that neither one of those actually solves anything. Conversation that we need to have sometimes don't go well. We try to avoid them, telling someone bad news, giving someone correction. No one enjoys doing those things, but they're necessary. Here's why they're necessary. If we don't have difficult conversations, we're never going to grow. If someone doesn't point out where we're struggling, we're never going to learn how to fix those things. And so here's where it comes back to Jude. Jude preferred, as we all would, a sweet letter. Who, who doesn't want a letter saying, hey, you're doing a great job, keep it up. We love to hear that, right? And that's what Jude wanted to write. He says so. But circumstances forced him to correct some things. So far I've said that we often avoid things that need to be said, but there's the other danger of swinging to the opposite side, always criticizing and always trying to fix everything. And here's the thing. If you notice, Paul's writing follows the same pattern. There is a correction, but it's always done lovingly. I love you, brothers. Here's why I'm correcting you. If I, as a parent would say, Kids, why are you punishing me? You hate me. No, it's actually because I love you that I'm punishing you. If I hated you, I'd let you do whatever you want. Jude says, I can't do that. I have to correct you because I care about you. I care about the church. I care about the gospel. Biblical correction should never be pleasant, but what some have done is to, to take Jude's words into heresy hunting. This was me in seminary. I thought I had all the answers. I thought I had the right theology, and I wanted to make sure everybody knew it, and I wanted to correct all those bad theologies that, I, that I'm hearing about and all these bad doctrines that I hear about. So I'd walk around, and I'd talk to people, and I'd find ways to get in conversations to correct people. My doctrine, I think, was good, but I was a jerk, so it didn't really matter at that point, did it? I hope I've changed. There are discernment ministries that spend their days digging through sermons or write, reading through books, trying to find something to catch a pastor or an author that they said something that veers off from what they determined to be correct theology. Obviously, it's all based on their interpretation of Scripture. And rather than seeing that there are many parts of the Bible where Christians can disagree, they seem to fight it out. That's what they want. Now, Again, this doesn't mean that we don't defend truth and we don't defend doctrine. This is a command from God, so we must contend for the faith. And it's interesting to know the Greek word here for contend means to strive, to fight, or to labor. The English word that we use for agonize is the same root word in Jude 3. So we agonize for the faith. And think about this. If you think about an athlete who's playing in a game or running or doing something that involves lots of energy and strength and perseverance, there comes a point at which that the athletes get to a point where the struggle is agonizing. It may be pain, it may be exhaustion, whatever it may be. But what do champions do? They push through that. Why? Because they have a goal that they're aiming for. The prize matters to them. They can suffer through it in order to get that championship, to, to get the medal, to get the trophy. To get the title. The prize matters more than their momentary suffering. And this is what it means to contend for the faith. Jude doesn't say that this gives us a permission to go hunting for doctrinal errors that don't really fully align with our own. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. And this is what we contend for. We contend for the truth of the gospel. We contend for the truth of what's read in Scripture. 
hearing some of that, I know what some people may be thinking. Okay, well, what faith? Which faith is it? Because we can drive around town and we can see a lot of churches that have a cross on it or have Christian in its name, but would veer very far off in a different direction from where we're at. So do we defend this or do we defend that? Where do we go? We fight for the essentials. So if you think of a, of a human body and the, the spine is what holds us all together, when the spine is out of alignment, everything else goes uh, haywire. When you have nerve issues, that, when you have a nerve issue in the neck, it affects your arms, it affects your legs, it affects everything else. So the spine is really what holds us up. And so if you think about a human body, the spine are the essentials of the Christian faith. So what are those essentials? Just run through them. The deity of Christ, that Jesus is fully God. Salvation by grace, that salvation is a gift. Salvation through Jesus alone, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that no other way can get you to God but Jesus. The resurrection of Christ, that he hung on the cross, that he died, and that he rose again, defeating death, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father. The gospel that we have broken God's law, that we have sinned against a righteous and holy God, and only through Jesus can we be made right. Monotheism, that there is one God. The Trinity, that there are three persons, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And finally, that faith is required to enter into the kingdom of God. Those are the spine that holds up everything else that we believe. Everything else is branching off from that. And the truth is, you deny any of those, you've denied the faith. It's not just being ignorant of something, but if you deny any of those things, if you come and you tell me, you know what, I don't believe that Jesus is God, because there are denominations that call themselves Christians that do not believe that Jesus is fully God. You have not only denied that, you've denied the entire faith. We could spend weeks looking at this and showing how these have been attacked, downplayed, or denied by some today, what we would see happening today is what we would see happening in the days of Jude. This is who Jude is writing to, correcting people who have distorted the essentials. They have distorted the Christian faith. And Jude says, contend for it. When he says the faith, he means all that is required to be a Christian. Uh, other doctrines are important, but they're not essential. Christians can have different views on baptism, spiritual gifts, gender roles, views of the end times. We can go on and on. But a denial of the essentials puts one in a position outside of the Christian faith. These are the hills that we die on. These are the essentials, what holds us together. And what was happening to the churches, according to Jude, was people were coming in and making a mess of all of those things. They were distorting the Christian faith. So we see that we need to know what we believe in order to, de to defend it. The second point comes from verse 4. So we not only need to know what we believe, we need to know how to live. For certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just good enough to know things. We want people to know things. 
I want our church to read books. I want us to talk about doctrine. I want us to talk about theology, embracing the truth, having the gospel and all of uh, that comes with it as part of our main conversation topics. This is what I, I want us to be. We need to thirst and hunger for knowledge. But just having knowledge isn't good enough. The knowledge needs to be put into action. I, I've said this many times that, that we need to, to recognize the Christian life as a life of balance. That, that we have a tendency in all aspects of our life to go to extremes. And what happens is that keeps us way out of balance. And, and if you've met people that have the right understanding, they know doctrine, but they also live it out, isn't it a beautiful thing? You can think of those people who, who, who live it out, who know the truth and live it out. They, they equally both. It's balance. A wrong emphasis on one leads to a deficiency in the other. We study and that leads to a changed life. We act because we know. They go hand in hand. This is a, a mature Christian existence is to know and to do. All that said, the church that Jude was writing to suffered from a lack of knowledge and a lack of proper behavior. We know this because Jude says it. People had come into the church and created problems, so what were they doing? It says in verse 4 that they perverted the grace of God into sensuality, and they denied the lordship of Christ. We've been conditioned in a lot of ways to, to view all sin equally. And I think it's right in a way, because the Bible says that one sin, if you commit one sin, you're guilty of them all, so ultimately one sin is enough to condemn us, and, and so... so Compared to God's perfection, all sin is equally damning. We know that. But we also know that it's not the same for us. Someone who steals $5 from their mom or dad, eh, it's a little problematic. We don't like that. But someone who empties their parents' retirement account, that's another problem. It's the same act, but we would certainly treat it very differently, wouldn't we? And so, so it, it's... it's we say, well, wait, these people were creeping into the church and they were sinning and they were causing people to sin. Well, I, who am I to judge? I'm a sinner too. And we would say that today, right? If we have to, to discipline someone or if there's sin that's brought before the church, we say, well, wait, how can we as a church say that someone's sinning when we're doing the exact same thing? But we recognize their severity. There's levels to that. They're all equally damning when we sin before God, but the sin that we bring into the church, there, there's a, a variety of sins and there's levels of sin. The people creeping into the church here, one, were not even believers, they were false converts. They lived as if God didn't exist. In other words, they were worshiping themselves. They did what they wanted. They lived how they wanted. They used the church as a means of getting what they wanted out of life. Two things that Jude says they're guilty of is turning grace into an opportunity for sin. And Jude said the people pervert the grace of God into, sexual, into sensuality. These men and women believed that they had been saved by God and that gave them a right to do whatever they want. We've seen this before in scripture. Well, you know, I'm a believer. I'm saved. I've got the grace of God covering me. And if I sin, God's going to forgive it anyway. So, so Paul addresses this because people were saying, well, God's going to forgive me, so I'll just keep on sinning so that I'll just receive more grace. Wow, what a concept. 
Keep doing bad things so God's grace keeps pouring on. And Paul says, absolutely not. Because that's a mark of someone who's not a believer. Because a believer hates sin. A believer is broken over their sin. A believer never or should never celebrate their sin. Why would we receive the grace and mercy and love of God and then go out and do things that disparage his name? Jude was seeing this happen. These people lived for themselves. They lived for sexual pleasure and greed. It was debauchery. The people gutted the Christian faith of any moral requirement. Is there liberty in our faith? Absolutely. We are free from the restraints of the law. We have freedom in Christ. Do we have unlimited freedom? No. Not at all. The situation in Jude is extreme. But isn't it for us too? Sin has always been around. The only difference is now we know. We can see it in the palm of our hand, either from our own doing or someone else's doing, but we see something bad happen, it pops up on our phone immediately. We get updates. There's always been sin. There's always been depravity. There's always been wickedness and evil. I've heard people talk about how the world is worse than ever. No, I think the only difference is that we know about it quicker. I don't think it's better or worse, just more visible. The second thing Jude says that people were doing were they, they were denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did these people distort the grace of God into something that allowed sin, they also rejected any kind of authority. They were libertines masquerading as followers of Christ. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Jude says that the judgment for these people, the people who have come into the church, faked professions of faith, pretended to be believers, but inwardly and outwardly acted like someone outside the church. They were, they, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Jude says that their punishment has already been determined. Their future is already sealed. None of the sins described in this text or the sins that we see in our own lives and the lives of others goes unnoticed by God. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. If we believe that God is omniscient, that he knows everything, nothing passes him. He, he's all-knowing. He knows everything. He sees everything. He gets everything. He will deal with everything. In this text, we've seen Jude address sinful behaviors that were causing many problems in the church. He also gives the church hope, though, that God knows about these sins, that God will deal with these sins. And so in a weird way, is this not a good encouragement? Think, think back to things that have been done to you or things that have been done to people that you love. Is it not an encouragement to know that they may not deal with it here on earth, but they will deal with it? God will deal with it? That, that those people who are evil and wicked and who which is us too but people who do those evil and wicked things isn't it nice to know that regardless someone like Hitler or Mussolini or Mao or Stalin or any of the dictators that we see will one day stand before God and face judgment they may not hear but they will one day they will receive whatever is deserved this is the promise 
We don't want to see it. We pray for them to come to salvation. We, we want to. And here is the wonderful thing about Christianity. No matter what we've done, no matter who we've done it against, for those who are in Christ, that punishment has come already. That judgment has already been laid out. It was Christ on the cross who took that, that we earned, that we deserve. So no matter what happens in the world, all sin will be dealt with. For the believer, it's already been. This is encouragement. This is criticism and judgment from Judy saying, you're wrong. But here's the promise of God that all of these bad things that have happened, they will be dealt with. It's one day that God will deal with all sin gives me hope. It's not vengeful. I pray that those dictators, I pray that those people who do horrible things to people, I pray that one day they will come to know Christ and that what Christ did on the cross will cover them. It doesn't absolve them from earthly punishment, but I pray for everyone to come to know Christ. Every one of us stands guilty before God and we will answer for what we've done for those outside of the Christian faith. Your defense will never convince God that you're a good person because he only measures you against him. And you fall very short. What Jude says in verse 4 is that false converts were designated for this condemnation. It is what every person faces as well. Each of us deserves condemnation for breaking the standard that God has given to us. We've all turned our backs on God. We've all gone our own way. We've all made idols in our hearts and we've worshipped something other than God. We've all done that. But God rescued those who repent and trust in Jesus for salvation. See, Christians are not the subject of this book. We are the recipients of Jude's letter. The subjects are those without Christ, false converts who have made a mess of the church. And so for Christians reading this letter, Jude gives us four applications. Four things that we can take away as we read this. They, they work for us just as well as they work for the original readers. First. Defend the faith. Our faith is all that we have. It's what keeps us going. It's what gives us energy. It, it, it keeps us pushing forward to make it through. Our faith matters more to us than anything else, so it must be the center of all that we do. Everything that we do as Christians is surrounded. Is, it has the gospel. It has our Christian faith in the center. Second, beware of those who deceive the church. I don't want to be one of those guys that finds boogeymen around every corner, but there are boogeymen around every corner. They're on your TV. They're in books that are published by Christian publishers, sold in Christian bookstores, marketed to Christian people. They're good at what they do. They sound spiritual. They know the Bible better than most, but their lack of fruit shows who they really are. Your, your family and friends may even share insights on social media, but these people, these false converts, these false teachers are tools of the devil. Third, beware of those who distort God's grace. There are all sorts of false teachings about God's grace. Some teach that God's grace allows you to sin freely because you're already saved. And on the other end, some say that, that God's grace requires you to behave in a certain way. You have to wear certain clothes. You have to meet certain standards. It's not the gospel. Finally, fourth, beware of those who deny the Lord. Years ago, there was controversy over what's called lordship salvation, and I never understood it. I still don't. If Jesus died for you, God adopted you 
brought you into his family. He gives you the promise of eternal life. He gives you everything that you have. How in the world can you say, well, I don't need to make Jesus my Lord. I don't need to follow. It's nonsense. If, if God has done all of that and brought you into his family, given you all of this as a free gift of salvation, Jesus is your Lord. That's your, your, the one you follow. People in Jude were not doing that either. There's no way to worship Jesus without making him your Lord. I want to close this morning by reading an extended section of scripture. It's going to be from 2 Peter 2. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Because I think they speak to much of the same. And, And to be honest, as we're reading this, apply this to your own life. Think through this. Because this is challenging to the church today. And in almost 2,000 years, nothing has changed. The sin that they dealt with in Scripture is the same sin and garbage that we deal with in our own lives and the lives of the church. We, we, we all deal with these things. So hear the words, 2 Peter 2, But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes as he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from from trials and to keep the right, unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Sound familiar? Same thing in Jude. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, where, whereas angels, through greater, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming, about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 
For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it and to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Church, we are in danger of false converts coming in, making themselves welcome, and destroying us from the inside. Worldliness and lust and greed, it's appealing. What scripture says is it is destructive. This is what it means when Jude says contend for the faith. Do not let this define who we are. Contend for the faith. Proclaim truth. Say this is what God says. Defend the faith. Fight for it. Would you pray?